0: I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 10, Categories of Plays. Session 1, Tragedies and Comedies. In Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet, Polonius, at lines 396 to 399, announces the arrival at Elsinore of a troop of traveling actors. The best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral-comical, historical-pastoral, tragical-historical, tragical-comical-historical-pastoral. The sentence is itself comical, because in trying to make his list exhaustive, Polonius ends with a combination that, whether or not there is any play that it might describe, sounds absurd. But his sentence is also revealing. The initial categories are those that Shakespeare and his fellow playwrights held to be authoritative. They inherited that classification of types of drama, tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, and satire from the ancient world, especially Aristotle's Poetics and Horace's Ars Poetica, the art of poetry. Chiefly through the 4th century Latin grammarians Donatus, Evanthius, and Diomedes. But as the sentence of Polonius illustrates, while the Elizabethan playwrights took those ancient categories seriously, Polonius's hyphenated categories, which describe well some actual plays of Shakespeare's age, hint at the freedom with which the Elizabethan playwrights modified the inherited categories, adjusting or merging them in their attempts to make meaningful dramatic entertainments for their audiences. The categories of Shakespeare's plays are tragedies, comedies, histories, romances, sometimes called tragicomedies, and a satire. Let's start with tragedies. What makes tragedies tragic? The classical category of tragedy referred to a play with the following three characteristics. The characters were high-ranking figures, kings and queens, princely heroes, rulers, and potentates the story focused on serious and important, often world-class events, and the trajectory of the story was from happiness to misery, order to chaos, power to loss, that is, a tragedy had an unhappy ending. The Renaissance added one more element to these three characteristics. The tragedy ended with the violent death on stage of one or more characters, Within this definition of tragedy, there were some subcategories. A de Cassibus tragedy, from the Latin casus, meaning fall or downfall, misfortune, destruction, tells the story of the fall of a great prince from power to powerlessness, from mastery to loss and death, from the top to the bottom of fortune's wheel. I discussed fortune in Session 1 of Series 1, Chapter 7 on Shakespeare's mental furniture. Examples in Shakespeare of the De Cassibus tragedy include Richard III, Richard II, King Lear, and Coriolanus. An Italianate or Intrigue tragedy tells the story of intrigues or secret crimes, whether of noble persons or others. Of this type, the Revenge tragedy forms a subset. The greatest Shakespearean example of an intrigue revenge tragedy is Hamlet. Other plays have elements of the intrigue tragedy woven into them, like Othello, King Lear, and Cymbeline, though the last is not a tragedy but a romance or a tragicomedy, which I'll discuss in session two. A domestic tragedy is usually, though not always, focused on private citizens engaged in private misdeeds, that is, crimes that involve a family rather than a whole city or a nation. Othello has often been called a domestic tragedy, though it also exhibits elements of the decasibus and intrigue forms. Another example of this type is Arden of Faversham, which is sometimes falsely ascribed to Shakespeare. I'll discuss that play in Series 1, Chapter 14, on hypothetical, spurious, and falsely attributed plays and passages. The differences between classical tragedy and Elizabethan tragedy were not only a matter of category. There is also the difference in theme and tone arising from differences in the conception of reality. The context of classical tragedies, like those of the Greeks Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, and the Roman Seneca was the mythic stories of the Greek and Roman gods and the shadowy afterlife of Hades. By contrast, the background of Renaissance tragedies, apart from those written in specific imitation of the classical style, was Christianity. Hence, the single greatest difference between the two conceptions of tragedy was this. In classical tragedy, generally the fate of the protagonist tends to be inevitable, whatever choices he or she makes. In Christian tragedy, the ultimate outcome tends to depend on the protagonist's free will choices. Another important difference is between the conceptions of the afterlife, between the classical images of Hades and Elysium, and the Christian images of hell, purgatory, and heaven. The classical tradition gives us the sense the tragedy is about there being no viable options for the protagonist, no good way out. Orestes, in Aeschylus's Libation Bearers, is faced with the horror of either killing his mother to avenge his father, whom she killed, and facing the wrath of the Furies, or of not killing her and facing the wrath of Apollo. In Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, the Greek is Oedipus Tyrannos, Which Aristotle took to be the best example of tragic drama, the character, fate, and choices of Oedipus all lead in only one possible direction. In fact, they have already led there even before the play begins. There is no escape for him from the vice grip of the fate that is contained in the will of the gods, his own character, the choices he makes, and the extraordinarily unfortunate circumstances of his life as if prophecy and outcome, fate and free will, past and future, were all one inescapable thing. The tragedy lies in there being absolutely no right answer, no escape from doing, which is the same as having done, the most intolerable things that could be done, parricide and incest. Let me just add as a footnote, that Aeschylus and Sophocles do offer their audiences another dimension to human life besides the grip of fate. In the Orestian trilogy, the ancient cycle of violent revenge ends with the establishment of the justice of the city of Athens by its patron goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And in Oedipus at Colonus, Sophocles shows the gods to be up to something besides the entrapment of the human protagonist. What they are up to is an unfathomable mystery, but it is something beyond man's enchainment in fate. However, these are rare hints of a spiritual dimension in a tradition in which, for the most part, death is the end, and the only end, of the tragic story. Unlike in Christian stories, if anything of most classical tragic heroes lives on, it is only in the story itself. By contrast, in Shakespearean tragedy, the trajectory ending in death is always a function of the relation between one's choices and the divine order of things, which includes man's responsibility for the choices of his free will. Except in those tragedies that Shakespeare sets in the ancient world and in the context of the Greek or Roman gods, the context behind a tragedy is not the shadow world of Hades but God's judgment of souls and the prospect of heaven or hell. And even in Shakespeare's Roman plays, which I'll discuss in a moment, there are implications of a better way of looking at reality that was unknown to an ancient Brutus or Timon or Coriolanus, but, as Shakespeare believed, was known to his own audience because it had been revealed by the life of Christ. As I pointed out in my discussion of Christianity in Series 1, Chapter 7, Session 3, of Shakespeare's four greatest tragic protagonists, two are ultimately saved, that is Hamlet and King Lear, and two damned, Othello and Macbeth. In King Lear, Shakespeare explicitly sets out to demonstrate the truth of the Christian idea of the structure of reality by setting the play in a pre-Christian world. For despite all the evil and brutality in the play, King Lear dramatizes a proud will purified by purgatorial suffering and thereby readied for heaven. The implication is that all men, whether they know it or not, live in a world the truth of whose structure has been revealed in the Christian message. Does this mean that Shakespeare's Christian tragedies, in which the protagonists are saved, are actually comedies? Heaven taking the place of a happy ending? No, for, as the Renaissance scholar Morton Bloomfield once said, the joy of the next world in Christian tragedy is different from the joy of the happy ending in this world in comedy. Nonetheless, for Shakespeare there is always the spiritual dimension that prevents the horror of death, even a violent death, the essence of the Elizabethan's definition of tragedy, from being final. There may be a worse horror, namely hell, or a redeeming transfiguration in heaven. In any case, the ultimate context of Shakespearean tragedy is the unseen realm of divine judgment and the eternal life of the soul. The category of Roman plays is not a formal category, But it is possible to group under this heading the tragedies that Shakespeare set in ancient Rome or, in one case, ancient Greece, Titus Andronicus, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, and Timon of Athens. These plays, very different from one another, are set in the context of the classical rather than the Christian world. To appreciate them properly, the reader must understand something Of the moral, ethical, and social norms of the ancient world that Shakespeare knew well from his reading. But the reader must also be able to observe how Shakespeare's own Christian consciousness chose to treat them. To take only one example, the assassination of Caesar by Brutus and the other conspirators in Julius Caesar can be seen as a tragedy of character. The mantle of the good intentions of the supposedly virtuous Brutus. Cannot save him from the consequences of his own pride. And it is a kind of tyranny over history to assassinate the ruler of the known world for fear of his tyranny. But one can also see in the play, performed for a Christian audience, the great disaster attendant upon man's attempt to overrule the hierarchy established and willed by the one God, of whom the characters in the play knew little but in whom the members of the audience believed. One feature of almost any Shakespearean tragedy is the inclusion of moments that seem to have been brought in from comedy, witty wordplay or slapstick byplay engaged in by characters, often of lower classes, that set off the seriousness of the tragedy by contrast. Often critics will call this phenomenon comic relief, As if the audience could not take too much tragedy without a break. There is some truth to this idea of the need for emotional relief from the intensity of tragic scenes. But it would be a mistake to read the comic scenes in Romeo and Juliet, or Hamlet, or Macbeth, as injected for emotional relief alone. The same scene that relieves us also sets us up for the increase of emotional intensity that is bound to follow. But even more importantly, always in Shakespeare, such scenes are thematically integral to the play. They exist as foil scenes to intensify the awareness of the themes being developed in the main plot of the tragedy. Here are some examples. In Richard II, Act Three, Scene Four is not particularly comical, but the Gardener's discussion of the need to trim and dress a garden is given as an explicit analogy. To Richard's failure to trim and dress the other Eden and blessed plot that is England. In Act Two, Scene One of Henry IV, Part One, the carrier's low-life complaints about the flea-infested inn and its haven for thieves provide commentary on the condition of the kingdom. Such thematic parallels, whether or not explicit, are everywhere in Shakespeare. In Romeo and Juliet. The battles among the servants are comical versions of the life and death battles between the Montagues and the Capulets. The comical gravedigger in Act 5, Scene 1 of Hamlet introduces a foolish version of the serious argument between Laertes and the Doctor of Divinity about the fate of Ophelia's soul, and also the classical Christian theme of memento mori, remember that you will die, a reminder of mortality. And the comical drunken porter in Macbeth enacts a highly significant fantasy of welcoming to hell various sinners who are guilty of the same kinds of crimes as Macbeth. Now let's turn to comedies. Are the comedies funny? Often they are, but that is not necessarily why they are categorized as comedies. According to the grammarians, where tragedy treated of princes and potentates, Comedy treats of non aristocrats, gentlemen and ladies of middle rank, men and women of lower rank, private rather than public citizens. The events in a comedy are not world shaking but local and limited in scope to families and communities rather than to cities and states. And perhaps most consistently, the trajectory of comic plots is from chaos to order, unhappiness to happiness, dysfunction to harmony. One could argue that, funny or serious, a comedy is defined by having a happy ending. As in tragedy, Shakespeare can be seen to be pushing the limits of the expectations for comedy as well. It's true that his comedies have happy endings, but in all but two of them there is a serious threat of death. Some of the main characters in his comedies are of high rank, and sometimes the comic resolution does involve the whole city. And the characteristics of what we might call romance, fantastic recognitions and reunions, divine or otherwise mystical interventions, the fulfillment of desire in the sacrament of marriage, are not present in classical comedy, like the plays of the Romans Plautus and Terence. In fact, Shakespeare's comedies inherit elements of their forms from many different sources. As Madeline Doran writes, the lines of comedy's heritage, from medieval farce and juggling turn, from comic episode and realistic scene in mystery and morality plays, from chivalric romance and saint's legend, from Roman comedy, from Italian comedy, both learned and popular, from Greek romance and Italian novel, from pastoral eclogue and pastoral romance, are complexly interwoven to issue in many new patterns. Doran's observation reinforces our recognition that the age of Shakespeare, largely led and inspired by the imaginative craft of Shakespeare himself, both rested upon and refashioned all literary and dramatic categories in pursuit of the authentic and effective fulfillment of the goal described in Hamlet Act 3, Scene 2, Line 22, namely, to hold as twere the mirror up to nature. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.